Immigration Advocates Network podcast. Hello and welcome to the Getting Started With podcast for Pro Bonos, an Immigration Advocates Network project. In this series, we talk to experts in the field to get their insight on working with a particular immigration client subset. To celebrate Pride Month, this episode's focus is on working with LGBTQ clients. My name is Dina Knott, and I am the Volunteer and Community Education Coordinator and AmeriCorps VISTA at Immigration Advocates Network. Today, I'll be interviewing Amitesh Parikh, a senior staff attorney at Immigration Equality's Pro Bono Program. Prior to joining Immigration Equality, Amitesh was a senior associate at Poo Folks Law Group, where he worked on direct representation of clients in affirmative and defensive human rights, family, and business-based immigration application cases. Before working at Poo Folks Law Group, he was a policy fellow at the National Center for Lesbian Rights, where he worked on expanding the definition of sex discrimination. Welcome, Amitesh. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. So, firstly, to lay the groundwork for this conversation, is there specific language you should be using in order to be inclusive, a specific acronym, or other things to be mindful of? Yeah, you know, that's actually a great question. Um, you know, just in general, individual folks may use different terms to describe their identities, you know, and when you're talking about an individual in particular, you want to make sure to use the term that they use so as to, you know, afford their identity, dignity, and respect. But just in general, you know, when referring to the community at large, immigration equality works with members from across the gender spectrum and, you know, across the spectrum of sexual orientations. And then we also work with intersex people and people who are living with HIV. And the umbrella term we use is LGBTQ and PLHIV. PLHIV stands for people living with HIV. Right? But other people also use the term LGBTI, LGBTQI. These are all acceptable. But we also know that you know, this can be a mouthful to say, especially if you have to keep on saying it over and over again. Like, yes, we help LGBTQ people and PLHIV people. You know? So sometimes we also just refer to our constituents by using you know, queer, trans, and HIV-positive people or LGBTQH. Uh, these are just some terms we use. Okay, thank you for that background. What has led you to your current work with the pro bono program at Immigration Equality? As you mentioned, you know, I was a policy fellow at the National Center for Lesbian Rights. And while I was at NCLR, I had the opportunity to interact with Immigration Equality. It was through some meeting for queer immigrants' rights. I believe it was a DACA meeting. And you know, being a queer immigrant myself, I was very moved by Immigration Equality's mission. And at the time, I already had my job uh, at Poo Folks Law Group lined up, and so I decided to go do a full dive in immigration law at the law firm. Now, at the law firm, I was able to learn a lot through direct representation, and I was kind of able to work on a wide variety of immigration cases, but I still had an interest in returning to uh, helping queer, trans, and HIV-positive immigrants. You know, and there was really no better place for me than immigration equality. Like, the organization works exactly at the intersection of queer rights and the immigrants' rights movement, and we currently are overseeing over 700 cases, plus we represent clients in-house, plus we have you know, individual projects here and there. It's a great place to work at. You know, we are fierce advocates, I would like to say so, and I'd like to think so, for the LGBTQH asylum seeker community and for just LGBTQH immigrants in general. So what kinds of cases do you oversee in the pro bono program? You know, before I answer this question, I kind of want to give a little bit of background on kind of immigration equality. You know, so yeah. we were founded over 25 years. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Sorry. 
<laughs> so uh, like we were founded over 25 years ago with three goals in mind, right? So like the first goal was to help same-sex LGBTQH binational couples and families that were separated by borders. And, uh, and to that end, um, we recently sued the U.S. government and we won when the U.S. government kind of refused to recognize that children of same-sex binational couples are American citizens at birth. You know, and I, and I, again, I would like to think it was due to our advocacy, but also I know our sister organizations worked on this, on this issue as well. But we finally got the State Department to change their policy on this. So that was a great victory for us. And then uh, the second reason we were founded was to overturn the HIV ban. So prior to 2010, people living with HIV were kind of barred from coming to the U.S. unless they had a person that they were married to in the U.S. Now, obviously, like, you know, queer people could not access marriage back then. And so this was an extremely homophobic kind of law, right? Uh, but, you know, Immigration Equality and our sister orgs, we actually engaged in a lot of advocacy. And we were finally able to get that ban overturned in 2010. And then the, the final prong of why we were formed, I guess, was to create a positive asylum and immigration law and policy and help queer asylum seekers in the U.S. Also, to adjust the thing on terminology, I will use queer as kind of an umbrella term because, you know, sometimes you saying LGBTQH can be a mouthful. So, like, I guess queer and HIV positive asylum seekers, um, you know, in the U.S. You know, and that is kind of in this third prong where our pro bono program lives. And we kind of work with um, attorneys at over 100 law firms who volunteer their time to help our clients. And we're currently overseeing, as I said, over 700 cases. Actually, I believe our caseload is currently at about 800 um, cases through our pro bono program, and we still enjoy around a 99% success rate. And to answer your question now, you know, in terms of the cases, we mostly focus on humanitarian paths of relief, mostly like asylum, withholding of removal, protection under the Convention Against Torture, but we also sometimes help with visas for um, victims of crimes, trafficking, and survivors of domestic violence. But most of our focus on the pro bono program is on helping asylum seekers, mostly because of the need of the people coming to the United States at this time. And now, in addition to this, as I mentioned, we also do individual projects. So after the fall of Kabul, we have been very active in helping queer and trans Afghans file applications to safely relocate to Canada. And we also use the help of some pro bono counsel uh, for some of these applications. Great. I'm so glad you brought that background on immigration equality up and talked a little bit about your advocacy because that was very cool to learn about. So a good addition. Moving forward. What should a lawyer ask to find out if LGBTQ issues may be a factor in a client's immigration case? You know, that's a great question. And one that I'm afraid does not have a simple or straight answer, right? Many LGBTQ applicants may not know that their sexual orientation, gender identity, or HIV positive status or intersex condition is a basis for a protection claim, right? Or they may be reluctant to talk about these topics because they're so private and they've had to hide their identity their entire life. Then this may especially be true, like if a lawyer is talking to an LGBTQ applicant, uh, you know, in the presence of a family member, you know, like sometimes family members are the ones who persecute LGBTQ people, right? And so, you know, what I generally recommend is a lawyer should talk to their client by themselves, make sure there's no one else in the room, Right, make sure that there's a safe space, ensure that the client knows that it is a safe space to talk about kind of anything. I didn't kind of just explain to them, like, you know, you may be eligible for protection if you either have been harmed in the past or if you fear harm, you know, because of your race, your religion, your nationality, political opinion, or 
any other characteristics such as, you know, being a survivor of domestic violence, being LGBTQ, being gay, being HIV positive, you know, like kind of asking these generalized questions to kind of encourage a client to be a little more forthcoming. You know, another question could be, have you ever been harmed in the past or have you been abused in the past by anyone, including your family members, because they thought you were different? Kind of asking these general questions so as to give a client ideas to kind of be a little more forthcoming if they are indeed LGBTQ, right? And then another thing is a lawyer should look for kind of verbal and nonverbal cues from the client. No, but you have to keep in mind that you cannot pressure someone into telling you what they're not ready to tell you. Like what I mean is that you cannot force someone to out themselves to you if they're not comfortable opening up to you. Right? Remember that a lot of LGBTQ people come from extremely homophobic countries and they may have never revealed their LGBTQ status to anyone. So if your client is opening up to you, you have to remember to be extremely gentle, right? They're being very vulnerable by revealing something that they may have never revealed to someone else. So you have to remember to be gentle, to be understanding and to be patient with clients who may be discussing LGBTQ issues in their case. All right. Those sound like some good tips for pro bonos. What are some unique struggles that LGBTQ immigrants face? I don't even know where to start the answer to this question, <laughs> but I guess the biggest thing that I will talk about is immigration detention. I guess I'll just start with the example, right? So say a transgender woman from El Salvador is trying to come to the United States. She's faced severe persecution in her country of origin, El Salvador, right? And she makes the very difficult and dangerous trip through Mexico and comes to the United States border, right? Now at the border, she's subjected to the Migrant Protection Protocols or Remain in Mexico program, right? Luckily, she might qualify for an exception to the Remain in Mexico program and might be allowed to come to the United States, right? But then we currently have Title 42 in place. Now, Title 42 is, you know, it's a Trump era policy that kind of excludes people from coming to the United States to seek asylum on the basis of COVID-19, right? Now, obviously, like medical professionals have said that, you know, this policy has no scientific basis, but the policy, unfortunately, is still in place, right? Now, this transgender woman, she may still qualify for an exception to Title 42. Now, say she comes to the United States. She says, hey, I fear persecution in my country of origin in El Salvador because I'm a transgender woman or because people assume that I am a gay man, right? Now she's given a credible fear interview. Now at this credible fear interview, you know, she is forced to speak to a government official, maybe for the very first time, about her gender identity. This may be something that she's not very comfortable revealing, right? So that might happen. Now, while she's awaiting her credible fear interview, she might be placed in detention. And I cannot emphasize how much detention is absolutely horrible for queer, trans, and HIV positive asylum seekers. Right? So we had a client who is HIV positive. This person self-identified as being HIV positive. You know, they had their meds on them when they presented to the border, but it's standard procedure for border guards to kind of take away medication before placing someone in detention. Right? So fine. But this person self-identified as HIV positive and requested medication. For a whole month, he did not get any medication. But after that, they gave him the wrong medication. Then they gave him the right medication, but in the wrong dosage. And then finally, he got access to like the medication that he needs for his HIV. And this is life-saving medication, and people need access to it, right? But, you know, we constantly see in detention that uh, access to medication, access to, uh, like to HRT, people often struggle with that. And then... Another thing to note is that, you know, most of these detention facilities, they're kind of in very remote locations across the southern border, 
right? Um, and sometimes they're not across the southern border. Sometimes they might be in states like Georgia, but they're still in very remote locations. Right? The fact that they're in remote locations kind of impacts people because you know there might not be the kind of infrastructure for legal service providers to provide services to people currently in detention facilities, right? So oftentimes, most LGBTQ asylum seekers, even though they have extremely strong cases, are forced to represent themselves pro se before an immigration judge. And we know that, you know, you're more likely to win your case if you are represented in immigration court. But, you know, people often do not have access to counsel, mostly because of the location of these detention facilities. Right now, in addition to lack of access to counsel, whenever you submit documents to immigration court, they have to either be in English or if they're in a language that's not English, they have to be accompanied by a certified translation. Right. Say this transgender woman from El Salvador, she does not speak English. And she might not be able to find someone in the detention facility to provide a certified translation for any document that she might have. So even though she might actually have evidence on her in support of her claim, she might not be able to submit that to court. Or if she submits that to court, the court will likely not accept it because it does not have a translation attached to it. Now, another thing with detention is, and I'm sorry, I, I know I'm keeping on going about detention, but this is so much bad about immigration detention. You know, oftentimes transgender people are detained with cisgender people that subjects them to a lot of abuse. And sometimes people are actually publicly outed by detention guards. Um, you know, we had a client who is a gay man living with HIV. And this person, you know, he self-identified as being gay and he self-identified as living with HIV. And they put him in solitary confinement for his own protection. And outside of his cell, they wrote in big letters, gay, sick, and HIV positive. And because of this, he was kind of outed to the rest of the detained population. And then he was ridiculed and kind of made fun of and abused by the other people who were detained with him. And one more thing about immigration detention, right? Uh, LGBTQ immigrants are 97 times more likely to be sexually assaulted and abused in detention than their cis or uh, hetero counterparts, right? And then this, the, there's one more thing about LGBTQ immigrants in detention, right? Now, in order to get out of detention, you generally have to apply for bond or parole. And part of that application is kind of saying, okay, I have a sponsor, you know, somewhere in the United States who is kind of willing to pay my bond or is willing to kind of sponsor me so I can live with them, right? And for most immigrants, this might be a family member or a friend, right? But we have to remember that, you know, queer immigrants mostly face persecution by community members, by their family and by their friends, right? So they might not have this network, right? And so parole or bond may not be available even to queer and trans people to get them out of immigration detention. Immigration Equality is currently advocating for no queer, trans, or HIV positive immigrants to be detained in immigration detention. We are advocating for alternatives to detention. Now, in addition to that, right, uh, most queer immigrants, you know, they might not have access to any form of ID. But the only ID that they might have is once they file their asylum application, they will get a work permit authorization, right, like the EAD card. And that EAD card might be the only form of ID for trans clients that shows their true gender identity, right? But in order to have this gender marker reflect their gender identity, uh, they do have to meet some burdensome requirements. They either have to have like a, you know, a court order stating that they are of the gender identity that they quote unquote claim to be, right? Uh, or they have to have like some other documentation that has kind of their gender market that has changed. But you know, this is generally not available to someone who already does not have ID or someone who might not have resources to pursue a court order, right? Now, they also have another option. Like, you know, they might be able to get a letter from a medical provider but a lot of transgender individuals don't even have access to medical providers 
in the United States. So this requirement ends up being extremely burdensome for transgender individuals and also for gender non-binary individuals. And the one more thing that immigration is doing incorrectly is like, you know, they are, there's currently no X gender marker for non-binary folks, especially on the EAD. Recognizing someone by their gender identity is like one of the most important things you can do to kind of treat someone with dignity, right? I have an example, like, you know, I had a client who I was their attorney for um, their EAD card and we applied for the EAD and they got the EAD with the gender market that reflected their gender identity. And when they got the EAD card, they just burst out in tears because it was the first time that an official government document recognized them for being who they are. You know, so this can have an extremely deep and profound impact on people. Um, and so, you know, just like getting immigration officials to recognize that true gender identity can be kind of burdensome. Then these are just a few examples of the, of the obstacles that queer immigrants face. Right. Um, there are also other examples. You know, sometimes queer immigrants who have no right to work and have no protections may kind of be forced into the shadow economy where they may be subjected to even more abuse. And this can be used against them in their immigration cases. You know, this is work that they need to do simply to survive. Right. And so there's a lot of obstacles that queer immigrants face. And I can go on about this, but I'll stop right here. Thank you for explaining all of that. The way that those factors compound and specific stories you told are pretty harrowing. Are there specific obstacles that a lawyer is more likely to encounter when they're working with an LGBTQ immigrant? So there are definitely some obstacles that a lawyer may encounter. For instance, you know, for immigration purposes that, you know, you generally have to corroborate your claim with secondary evidence, which may be a letter from a friend or a family member. But as I said, queer people and trans people are more likely to be persecuted by community members, right? And so they might not really have access to any kind of corroborating evidence. So a lawyer may have to work on, on their client's affidavit alone, and that might be the only form of evidence that they might have towards their claim. For someone who recently came out, it might be hard for them to prove their sexual orientation, right? Because say, for example, a gay man from Iran you know, was extremely closeted in Iran because Iran has a death penalty for same-sex conduct. And so they were very scared of coming out in Iran, just came to the United States, have come out to themselves, and now filing for asylum. Again, for asylum, you have to corroborate every element of your claim, including your sexual orientation. It might be hard to kind of provide evidence of sexual orientation for such a person, right? And also, it's very important to remember that, you know, queer immigrants have saved their own lives and have come to the U.S., and they've left behind everything they know. And, you know, coming to the U.S. can be an extremely traumatic process for a lot of people. And also, like, the experiences that people have lived in their countries of origin can lead to, um, you know, psychological conditions such as PTSD. You know, if someone suffers from PTSD, it might lead to kind of overgeneralized memory issues, which can be harmful in an immigration case, because sometimes, you know, people living with PTSD might kind of confuse facts, confuse dates, and kind of the issue of being inconsistent definitely shows up and can harm an immigration case. On that note, what would you say are the most important things for pro bono lawyers who haven't had prior experience with LGBTQ clients to understand? You know, the most important thing that I think is important to understand is it is so important to treat people with kindness and respect. But the first thing you should do is ask about your client's name and pronouns. Ask them how they would like to be referred to. And you know, this is the most basic thing you can do to treat them with dignity and to see your client for who they are. And the second thing is, like, don't be judgmental. You know, queer and trans people and HIV positive people often have to do a lot of things just to survive. 
Like take, for example, sex work, right? This may be seen as offensive by some people, but remember, like people have fought hard to live and have come to the United States to be who they are. Right? So always go into your client meetings and know that you know you should not be judgmental towards a client's past life or their history. Right? And also, if you feel like your client is not being forthcoming, don't get frustrated. You know, your client may not feel comfortable revealing aspects of their life because they've been forced to hide it for so long. You know, so be understanding and kind and patient with your clients. Got it. Thank you. Finally, how would you advise a pro bono lawyer or other legal service provider to get started if they wanted to be involved in helping LGBTQ immigrants? That's a great question. Um, reach out to us. <laughs> you know, we're always looking for more attorneys to help us help more clients. We offer training and detailed and comprehensive guidance as you represent your clients. Additionally, you know, if you don't have experience with queer and trans communities, you should also get some LGBTQ competency training. You know, there's several queer and trans-led organizations that provide such trainings. It is extremely important to kind of support queer and trans-led community-based organizations. We also have several helpful materials on our website. Uh, that's www.immigrationequality.org. You know, these materials may help you in working with your client and guiding you through the process. And finally, you know, even if you can't take a case with us, support us in other ways. You know, we cannot do the work we do without your help. Um, and so, yeah. And if you have any questions, please do reach out to me. Wonderful. All right. We will make sure to post you guys' website and information with the podcast recording. Thank you so much for coming on and giving a great interview. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And thank you again so much for having me. And happy Pride Month. Happy Pride Month.